This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Geraint Lewis. Born in Old South Wales, Geraint Lewis is a professor of astrophysics at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy, part of the University of Sydney's School of Physics. His research focuses on the dark side of the universe, the matter and energy that shapes our cosmos. Dr Lewis is a teacher, an author and science communicator. As well as two books on cosmology, he has published more than 400 papers in international refereed journals. Dr. Lewis's new book, co-authored with Ferry Chris, is titled Where Did the Universe Come From? and Other Cosmic Questions, Our Universe, From the Quantum to the Cosmos. Dr. Geraint Lewis, welcome back to the program. Hello, how's it going? Good. Now, Doctor, you've recently been working in something that's really interesting. Now, we, a lot of people understand the idea of time dilation, you know, relativity and those things like, you know, that part of it. But there's also the idea of cosmological time dilation. Can you lay that out for us? Yeah. So, you know, we have, we go back to Einstein's general theory of relativity. And of course, what we, the thing that we know uh, that the sort of common story is, is that uh, one of the consequences is, is that time runs differently for different observers. And so, you know, there's no universal clock. There's no sort of way that we can all sync our clocks together in a simple way. And uh, what Einstein told us, of course, is firstly that uh, clocks for people are moving at different speeds, they, they run differently. General relativity says that clocks at different locations in a gravitational field run differently. So a clock on the Earth runs differently to a clock that's orbiting on a satellite. But one of the other consequences of the equations of relativity is that when we look at clocks spread throughout an expanding universe, we should see those clocks run differently. And so what we have is that we live in this expanding universe. And if you want to think about it, it's like space-time today is different to the space-time yesterday. And that difference in space-time means that when we, we look back and we see clocks in the past, we should see their ticks run slower. And the further back we look, the slower and slower the apparent clock tick 
would appear. <clears throat> so this cosmological um, time dilation, it's been known for quite a while. <clears throat> Excuse me, I lost my voice there for a moment. It's, it's been known for quite a while in terms of the theoretical expectations, but it took us <clears throat> up until around the 2000s to actually start to measure cosmological time dilation. So this is looking out, out into the universe, looking for objects that we can use as clocks. So we, you know, we need to find objects that we can think have a, some sort of standard tick that we can measure, and then seeing how their tick is dilated as we look further and further back into the universe. Now, pulsars, how does that play into this? Are those the clocks? Well, pulsars would be useful clocks. So pulsars, of course, are these tiny little very dense stars, which are rotating very quickly, and they, they send out pulses at very regular intervals. But the problem we have with pulsars is that they're not very bright. And so we can only really see pulsars as clocks um, in, the, in the relatively local universe. So we don't see pulsars far enough away for us to measure the effects of the expanding space between us and the pulsar. Maybe with future radio telescopes that can peer more deeply into the universe, we'll be able to pick up the, you know, the tick, tick, tick of pulsars, which are far enough away to measure this. But at the moment, um, we just don't have the sensitivity. Now, what if something really powerful, like a quasar? Uh, yes. So the, um, I should mention, firstly, that we, have, we can go somewhere in between first. So that there are exploding stars called supernova. So they are the, the ones that people have used in the past as a, some sort of cosmic clock. And a supernova is a, is a big star that explodes. And that explosion plays out in an in a almost identical fashion for each supernova. So they brighten very quickly and then they fade away over some sort of time scale, a matter of weeks. And um, there was a project that was started in the 1990s to measure the expansion rate of the universe. And they were looking at supernova. And so we're looking at the rate at which they brightened and faded. And so they, they said that they had detected this time dilation, that supernova they were looking at, which were roughly, you know, explosions were roughly 5 billion years ago. Their explosions were running at roughly, you know, they were slowed down by a factor of two. So instead of taking two weeks to brighten and fade, they were taking um, uh, roughly a month. So there was this detection of, um, of the cosmological time dilation, but still only about half the age of the universe. Now, there are other variable objects in the universe, and some of them are very bright. And the one you mentioned there are quasars, which is something that I've been working on for a number of years. So quasars are these supermassive black holes. So they're black holes with masses of order a billion times the mass of the sun. And around those black holes, you have material swirling around. So this material is, is going around really quickly, uh, approaching light speeds. And if you can imagine, you've got material moving really quickly. Stuff is rubbing against stuff. The, the material gets very, very hot and glows very, very brightly. So these, these quasars, as they're called, they were discovered in the 1960s. And now we can see them basically you know, all the way back over um, to almost the... the the furthest we can see. So we can see quasars over more than 10 billion light years away. Now, quasars vary. You can imagine those accretion disk material is swirling around. That material has turbulence. Things are popping and bubbling away. And that causes the brightness of these quasars to vary. So they, they get bright and they get dim and they get bright and dim, etc. 
And, and the question has been for a while that, that you know, if I see a nearby quasar, it, it should be, um, you know, its light should be flickering in a certain way. If I look at a more distant quasar, I should expect to see a similar kind of flickering, but, but now dilated due to the expansion of the universe. So people have looked for the, this quasar time dilation for several decades, and there was a big mystery because they, they basically failed to find it. They, they had their quasars, they measured their brightness fluctuations, and they couldn't see any signal that nearby quasars were varying in one um, fashion, and distant quasars were varying in a similar fashion, but time dilated. So, so this was a bit of a mystery, and what it did, of course, is it, it, um, it led some people to suggest that maybe these objects, these, these quasars, are not truly supermassive black holes and are not truly billions of light years away. Maybe we have been um, fooling ourselves. Maybe they're actually in the nearby universe, and that, that's why we don't see the effect of the expansion of, of space-time between us and them. Um, so th this was the situation up until the end of last year. And what happened is, is a, a group in the US, they published a new set of data on these quasars. So we know, we know tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of quasars that are out there, but these guys focused on only 200 of them. And the reason that they have that focus is that these, these quasars were located in the same patch of sky, and the project, which had been underway for several decades, had gone back time and time again and, and observed these quasars. So they looked at the, the, the quasars, and they had different telescopes, and they got... Uh, images of the quasars over this this time scale, and they measured the brightness, and so they got the light curves, the, the flickering of each of uh, these quasars. Now, what was kind of interesting is that in that time period where they were gathering the data, a few things had changed. Firstly, we had actually started to get a handle on just how quasars varied in their brightness. So they're, they're not like, um, you know, they're, they're not like a, a lighthouse, which is, you know, flash on, flash off, flash on, flash off. Their brightness variability is a lot more like the stock market, right? It ups and downs and ups and downs and on various scales, sometimes doing something for a long period and sometimes very rapidly. And we had managed to get a statistical handle on the brightness variability of quasars. It's something known as a damped random walk for people who understand this kind of variability. And so I got hold of this data and I, I thought to myself, ah, if we are able to characterize the, the, the quasar's variability in terms of a damped random walk, maybe I can use that as the standard tick that we can use you know, to try and measure cosmological time dilation. But there was another problem in that... Um, Quasars come in lots of different varieties. You know, some are bright, some are faint. And when we observe those quasars, we're, we're not always observing them on exactly the same sort of, uh, same sort of scale. Um, and I, and, but luckily, this data set was good enough that I was able to group together quasars based upon their properties, how bright they were and how we were observing them. And yet, so over like uh, Christmas, New Year, um, at the start of this year, I was able to dig into the, the statistics of the variability and hunt around and, I said, put, put quasars on an equal footing. And one thing that popped out of the data more or less immediately is that there was a difference between the variability for nearby quasars 
and more distant quasars. And that variability was precisely the cosmological time dilation that, that people had missed in the past. So we were able to show that, uh, yes, we have this cosmological time dilation effect. And because quasars are much brighter than supernova, we could observe them over 90% the age of the universe. So we were able to look back and the most distant quasars we were seeing, their time was basically ticking away five times slower than time in the local universe. So that was a, a pretty cool result, really. Unfolding five times slower than what it actually did. That's yeah. that's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, now, quasars themselves. So do we really understand the mechanism of what a quasar is? And is it possible that there was a time where the Milky Way was a quasar and somebody way out there in an extragalactic situation is looking at the Milky Way measuring uh, cosmological time dilation? Well, so firstly, quasars are complicated places. Uh, my, my wife used to work on the physics of quasar accretion disks, and I can tell you now that when you have material which is super hot moving at super high speeds, the physics gets very, very complicated. But we, we do have a, a handle on the kind of mechanisms of things that are going on in that sort of swirling accretion disk. Um, as you can imagine, the material is so hot that it's a plasma rather than normal gas. And when you have plasmas, you have strong magnetic fields. And so you get physics like the physics we get on the surface of the sun. You get outbursts and all that kind of thing. So we don't understand the detail, but we are getting to grips with the complicated physics. Now, the question of whether the Milky Way was a quasar is a very interesting one. Firstly, we know that the black hole in the middle of the Milky Way is big. It's roughly four million times the mass of the sun. But it's not super big. It's not billions of times. So there, there probably was a period when the Milky Way's black hole was feeding. It was eating gas and that gas glowed brightly. But it may not have reached the scale, may not have reached the, the power output of some of these really highly luminous quasars that we, we see. Um, there's actually a very nice little science fiction book from the 1960s or 70s written by Fred Hoyle, who was a course a very famous cosmologist um, and he basically was uh, was thinking about this and in his story it's set in the modern day but what happens is, is that the the black hole in the middle of the milky way starts feeding and starts to glow and starts to output a lot of energy and that starts to have rather uh, dramatic influence on the earth right because we have got all this extra radiation arriving and people have to basically move to the Northern Hemisphere, basically yeah, up to Scotland to get away from that extra radiation that's coming from the galactic center. And if you think about it, it might be good that the Milky Way may not have ever gone through that quasar stage. Because if the output was really at the scale that we see in quasars, maybe that would basically prevent that host galaxy from ever hosting life. If it's putting out so much radiation that planets themselves are starting to get highly irradiated, maybe it's the fact that we didn't go through that quasar stage is one of the reasons that we're here at all. Now, a hypothetical situation as we grow in our understanding of quasars is say you get a situation where a quasar can turn back on by way of a galactic merger or something like that, where the black hole gets new material to eat up. Is that an extinction event? I mean, would that cause the extinction of, um, you know, most species in a galaxy? Should that happen? 
Yeah, yeah. This is a question people have thought a lot about, about you know, the, how much the galactic environment influences the, the possibility of life forming on a planet in a galaxy. And uh, people have sort of, some have come to this conclusion that maybe we are here because our Milky Way has basically had a quiet life. It hasn't had a violent collision. It hasn't had one of those periods where we've had this massive output of radiation due to it going through an active galaxy stage. So yeah, it, it could be that you know the, the galaxies that we are seeing that are hosting quasars, maybe those ones ha- are dead and sterile because they've been through this, this really sort of apocalyptic event. And we're lucky because we're in a ra- relatively quiet galaxy. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, the Fermi paradox starts to dissolve a bit when you start taking into factors that not only do you have things like the rare Earth hypothesis, but what about the rare galaxy hypothesis where the Milky Way is just unusually quiescent and it the conditions of the galaxy itself were necessary for life to, you know, get a start here? Yeah, and in fact, there's there's people who now talk about a, a galaxy habitable zone. So, uh, in, in our Milky Way galaxy, we sort of know that life in the middle of the Milky Way would be very tricky because the the orbits bring stars very close. You get lots of supernova going off. It's a kind of one of those sort of active environments. Whereas in the outskirts of the Milky Way, star formation has been too quiescent and there are relatively few heavy elements. So maybe there are not the elements we need to form planets and, and, and life in the outer regions. So we find our sun in the galactic habitable zone. But there are other things that can happen in a galaxy. You can get um, not only exploding stars in the form of supernova, but we know we also get hypernova and gamma ray bursts and fast radio bursts. And again, maybe the Milky Way has been lucky and we haven't had one of those close enough to us that it could have been you know, an apocalyptic event and ex- uh, an extinction of all, all life on the planet. You know, another interesting um, issue that's popped up recently in astrobiology is the phosphorus problem and that phosphorus may not be distributed evenly, even in the Milky Way, which adds a further constraint onto it. And then you got questions of, you know, do you need a moon with tides and things like that? But you always have wild cards like the ice shell moons, Europa and Enceladus and that sort of a situation where maybe it can happen a completely different way. But can you imagine that where you got some shielding because you got all that ice, you know, can you imagine a situation where the universe is, you know, is a place of life and a boat of life, but it almost never happens on an, on a terrestrial planet. It's always in an ice shell and they're locked in and they can't do cosmology and they never know about things like tide and dilation. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you do, have, do you have to try and rein in your science fiction mind when you think about the possibilities of life? Um, there's not only of life, of course, um, uh, on the surface of a planet, but there's also the you know life that might be on a water world, right? That lives at the bottom of the ocean. How do they do their cosmology? Uh, how do they? How, do, how could their technology advance? No matter how smart they get. So yeah, the, my sort of feeling is is that uh, I am on the life, uh, like intelligent life, uh, technological life is probably vanishingly rare in the Milky Way galaxy and maybe in the universe as a whole. It's interesting. It's 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 one of our one of our great mysteries. But another mystery is what exactly is time? Is time a physical concept or is it just something that we we exist in that, you know, 
a clock can differentiate. But other than that, is there a physical time? Now, Einstein sort of skirted this with the idea of space time. Um, but is time a physical thing? Is it a dimension or something like that? Or is it just something that we perceive, which has no re actual reality? Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is a difficult question. And, it, you know, it leads to all kinds of philosophical arguments. And, you know, I'm teaching uh, general relativity and cosmology at the moment to our, my, my fourth year students. And, you know, we talk about the concept of time and the concept of time in relativity and the, the notion that we had of time. So, so like when we when we start our university education in physics, right, time is taken as a given. It's something that ticks off and we can set all of our physics with regards to the fact that time ticks off from one instant to the next. And we don't really worry about what time is. That's something for the philosophers to, to get lost in. But then when we get to relativity and then uh, time, instead of being the background, becomes the stage, right? It, it's, it's part of the equations. And we have to ask questions about, you know, why does time have a direction? Um, why is there an experience of time? Because when you write down uh, the universe according to, to Einstein, um, time is equivalent to space in the same sense as that, you know, um, left, right, up and down, they exist. The time, all of time exists in exactly the same way as all of space does. And then the question of why we've, we experience time as basically unfolding, that's not in the equations. The equations don't say to us that we should expect the, the future to unfold from the present. The future's already there and the past is still there. And somehow we are... We are winding our way through this like some sort of, like, you know, you're drawing a pencil on a map. It, it yeah, it. I don't know. I must admit, it does bother me. And the 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 notion that again, the future already exists in that relativistic picture, of course, leads to all kinds of weird questions about free will and uh, you know our choices into the future. If it's already written. Then, then where is free will in all of this? So you have to turn to the, the people who do quantum mechanics and they'll say to you things like, oh, you know, we've come up with this picture where time unfolds or is built out of some sort of quantum process and now is, is like a sheet that exists in this, this relativistic picture. But the, the arguments in my mind, they're, they're not overly compelling at the moment. Um, it, uh, are you familiar with a, a Stephen King story called The Langoliers? I am indeed. Yeah. Go into that. Yeah. So, no, The, the Langoliers is this, this idea, uh, and it was made into a, a, a TV movie, that um, time exists as, 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 as an, an instant, as a now, uh, but the past is constantly being consumed by these creatures called the Langoliers that, that ensure the past no longer exists and the future gets to unfold in front of us. And I think that Stephen King story seems about as reasonable as many of the quantum ideas I've seen people propose um, to explain how time behaves, right? It, we, we, really, we really do not have a very good handle on what time is and why it behaves in the way it does and why we experience a now and where does the past go and where does the future exist 
it's it's still one of those big mysteries. Indeed, as is the idea of time travel, because it's a double-edged sword. Again, because of general relativity, you have time dilation, and which means you can travel into the future. And even just sitting here stationary, we're still traveling into the future, mm-hmm. but not the past. So what is it? Uh, what is the difference between the future and the past such that the past you can't get to, or at least we can't figure out an easy way to do it, but the future, you're you're stuck with it. Well, again, I, I had a really good philosophical chat with my relativity students about this. Is is uh, again in the equations of relativity, um, the definition of future and past is not defined. You, we have to impose what we think is the future into our equations, but in there, nowhere does it say this direction is the future, that direction is the past. We can choose. We have an arbitrarily choice, and we can flip the past for the future. So we have to ask ourselves, uh, why do we have a direction? Why do we have a direction of time? And I I think in in my mind, the the only sort of answer that I can come up with why this direction exists is that that our universe had a beginning. There was a, a point, a starting point that the universe has, and it played out in, in a particular direction, and that sets the future and differentiates it from the past. Um, and if we lived in a universe where the, it didn't start with a Big Bang, imagine we had a universe that was in, stretched infinitely far into the past and infinitely far into the future in terms of time, then I think the definition of future m- may not be a well-posed project, uh, a well-posed, sorry, concept, in, in that um, you you could have creatures, beings, both moving through this space, but for one of them, they're going backwards in time with respect to the other, if that sort of makes sense. I I mean, mathematically, I can write that all down, and it sort of, it it works mathematically, uh, but, and maybe it is the fact that our universe in some level is asymmetric. It has a start, which is finite in the past, but an infinite future ahead of it is the reason why we experience the future unfolding. But a lot of that is my personal preference rather than uh, anything really hard and scientific to say because you know we don't know how our universe was born, we don't know how it was brought into being, we don't know what wrote the difference between past and future into our universe, but I think the birth of the universe has got something to do with it. So in other words, if you were to be able to ask the universe a question and it could respond, if you asked it, why is there an arrow of time? It says, because I had to start somewhere. Yes, effectively, effectively. Uh, but of course, you know, um, if you if you remove that arrow and you think about the fact that, you know, most of physics is time reversible, all this kind of stuff, it it doesn't make thinking about time any easier. You just end up with a bigger headache, I think. Do you think now mathematics has been of immeasurable value in describing the universe? It's how we do it. But do you think that there may eventually be a failure where mathematics does no longer describe the universe? And I use this uh, that in the sense of like general relativity breaking down inside the event horizon of a black hole or stuff like that, where it just stops predicting. Do you think that there is something in mathematics that might not be able to describe aspects of the universe? Well, again, that's a good question that that I was having with my students yesterday. 
Um, I, I often wonder about the sciences, right? So we, we tend to have this picture where physicists talk about, you know, we're doing the fundamental stuff, we're doing the pure stuff, and then chemistry is doing the smelly stuff and biology is doing the stuff that moves around. But I often, I often wonder if physics is really doing just the simple stuff, the stuff that we can explain with mathematics. And that as you work your way up the, the scientific tree, that you get to regions where mathematics is, is less and less of a useful language to describe what we're looking at. And the astronomer royal, um, Martin Rees, I remember him uh, in some of his writing basically pointing out that, you know, a star is much simpler than a bee. So physicists study stars because we can write down equations to study stars, but writing down the equations to, to describe a bee uh, is a lot harder, right? Because where, where are you writing your equations? What are you describing there? Are you describing the molecules of the bee, the behavior of the bee, the way the bee flies, etc.? It, it, it's a very complicated object. So yeah, I, I some level, I... I I, and that runs, in my mind, straight into the question of things like consciousness, right? Is it that we can't describe consciousness because it is a, uh, it's beyond the realm of mathematics? It's such a complicated thing that we, we just can't do the sum of the mathematics required to describe something like consciousness? And it might be true. I mean, I know physicists can't describe a bee. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's physics. If physics just sticks to the easy stuff, then maybe maths will be fine. Uh, but if if we do try and push it to to the realm of really complicated things, we already know that our our standard mathematical tricks don't really work that well anymore. You know, it's a uh, it's 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 two points on this. The first is that that the universe can produce something so complex as a bee says that you should probably look for complexity (laughs) instead of the low hanging fruit, but also in its way that B is beautiful. Just the complexity of the universe on that scale is beautiful and get into, you know, a human and consciousness takes it even further because it's been said before that consciousness is the universe perceiving itself. But at least, you know, if you don't want to go that far, you can at least say that it's possible to be conscious in the universe in a universe that didn't have to be that way. Yeah. Uh, which is another one of those, you know, rare universe theory, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. the, the multiverse, we're the only one where everything came together, you know, but there's a bunch of dead universes out there. But let me ask you this now though, if, all right. So do you think our understanding, you know, of science is capable of a Titanic change? In other words, say we get another Einstein comes along and, produces another theory that's way ahead of its time do you think that that can still happen in science and that we would gain a greater insight into into the universe and sort of let us figure out the differences between um quantum mechanics and general relativity which happened with einstein i don't know i think somebody probably would have figured out special relativity but general relativity it took einstein for that do you agree uh, well, I do and I don't at some level. I, I mean, my, the, the problem that I have is that we're now looking back over 100 years. And, uh, you know, actually, we do know that there were a bunch of players involved with regards to the discovery of general relativity. Right? I mean, he was, um, 
forgotten who he was now. Oh, this is terrible. Now, I mean, there was a there was another math, math, uh, mathematician who Einstein knew who was working at the time who was going along a very similar kind of path. Uh, I'm, and I, I'm not trying to uh, downplay the role that Einstein has had on science. He has had a massive role. Uh, but we have to be very careful to think that uh, really uh, ideas that one person have has are completely beyond the scope of another human being coming uh, coming up with those ideas. The, so the, the the question about uh, will we have another Einstein, I, I think is is um, I think it's it's bound to happen at some level. The, 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 the we know that science isn't solved. We know that physics isn't solved. We know that we have these huge outstanding problems and there is scope for somebody to come in and have such a field-changing uh, impact in, in modern physics. We might not recognize it as such because physics is now much bigger, much more diverse than than it was in, in Einstein's day. And I'm not saying that that... Um, it, it, that it wasn't complicated back then, but of course the complications just have grown now. The, the scope of physics has grown, so there will be there will definitely be revolutions in areas. There will be revolutions in in the world of the quantum. There will be revolutions in the world of gravity, um, and they will happen. I think what has what has happened, which is more telling, is that we have just become more impatient. Uh, we have had, you know, the 20th century saw such a big change, uh, you know, in a hundred years that we, I think we felt like every new mystery of the universe will have to yield its secrets with just, you know, a little bit of a tap with a hammer. But, you know, we, maybe we've settled down into this period where it's going to take a bit of a slog until we get to the next big insight. Uh, you know, as I said, the universe doesn't, doesn't owe us uh, solutions coming in a one-year timescale or a three-year timescale or even a 10-year timescale. It might be decades to centuries, but but we don't know. I, of course, it, it could be that somebody wakes up tomorrow morning and just goes, oh, I, hang on, and hang on, and has a new idea, and that could change everything. But I think it's I think there's a lesson learned in science that is, is that scientists are terrible at making predictions for when the next revolution is coming, right? It could just be around the corner, but it could be a century away. But there then is the wild card of AI. Do you think AI could figure it out for us? In other words, could it say, well, you humans uh, didn't take enough into account, but I can. And it calculates for however long. Uh, maybe 10 centuries or less, and it figures it all out. And there it is, a complete view of physics. Do you think that can actually happen, that computers may be better physicists than we are? Um, at the moment, I'm not seeing evidence of that. Uh, in, in the sense that... Uh, in the sense that being, being a revolutionary physicist takes imagination. You really do have to look at something from a different perspective to change a field. Now, what, what I've seen with AI um, is that at the moment, it's very good at collating data and finding relationships. And those relationships might point in a new direction. But the, the spark of creativity that's needed for science, 
I've not quite seen it, right? But again, I'm not saying that it's not possible. It's just that I, I've yet to see anything that I would, I would say, oh, that's told me something new about the universe. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. And of course, what we're, we are seeing, uh, like in the artistic side of things, AI is starting to, in, in my humble opinion, is starting to generate art that I can appre appreciate and images and, and, and video and music that, that really does start to resonate with me. So it's, it's starting to latch on to the, what, what I like as a human. Whether it latches on to the spark of creativity for, for scientific advance, that's a difficult question. And the thing that I guess frightens me, frightened, air quotes around frightens, is that if it, it latches on to a creativity in science that I can, we cannot appreciate, we cannot understand, if it goes beyond you know, what our monkey brains can really do, um, then we may never really understand what it's, it's doing. Um, but it's not there yet. So, yeah, maybe, uh, I, again, I, I think I'd be very foolish to start making predictions that physicists will never be out of a job. But as of yet, I've not seen evidence that, that we have to worry too much. I think what would be funny is if we <laughs> we created an artificial intelligence, a general AI, generalized AI that was able to figure it out and then it wouldn't tell us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, oh, I know, I know, I understand the universe, but I'm not going to tell you because you'll hurt yourself. Well, well, exactly. It's it's one of those things, um, you know, you think of, of uh, back to Asimov's robot laws, right? And, you know, the, his original robot stories were about how robots basically got themselves tied up, trying to, uh, you know, ensure that they didn't damage a human and all this other kind of stuff. But if you've got an AI that realizes that if it gives you some of the, its wisdom, that there's scope there for us to destroy ourselves, then maybe it wouldn't, wouldn't share it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, who knows, right? Who knows? There, one of the things that I, I, I do love is that there's a, there's a long history of, of AI uh, in science fiction. And there's, there are various songs about, um, about machines that run the world for the, the, the sort of uh, benefit of, of humankind that we'll never have to work again. And uh, when I was growing up, I and mean, still am a big fan of, of David Bowie, but you know, back in the 70s, he had a song called Savior Machine. Uh, and again, it was all about a machine that, that was running for the benefit of humankind, but then one day gets bored and, and you know, doesn't, doesn't know what to do with us. So you know, the, the, the ethical questions around AI and what AI will do and how it will interact with us. I think that is a, that is a really big question. Uh, and and we, I think we are still grappling with that question about um, how AI is going to be, how we're going to ensure it's going to be beneficial uh, and how we're going to ensure it, it doesn't decide that it, it's going to destroy us anyway. There's a number of it, such wonderful scenarios that that as soon as you get an advanced enough AI, it concludes that there's no point and turns itself off, so you can't yep. ever develop it. <laughs> yep, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I look. I, I I've been I've been I've been reading the science fiction of AI, but I've also been looking at some of the ethical stuff around AI, and I do find some of it a little bit frightening. AI in in um, 
in warfare scenarios is pretty scary stuff. So yeah, um, interesting times ahead, I think. The key is to end the practice of warfare before you get there, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, I wish that's what the world would focus on uh, yeah. before we get there. But um, what is your two questions? And the first question is this, since we're heading into September, but it's getting close to October, which is spooky season. Um, what is the one aspect of the universe that gives you pause and even spooks you? Oh, uh, look, I think it's, I think it's the fact that we know the universe is going to die. Um, the, I, whenever I think about the, the 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 life of the universe, we we forget that we're living in the twilight of the glorious period of the universe. You know, ninety nine percent of all the stars that ever are going to exist in the universe have already been born. Right, we are we are already winding down in terms of the life of the universe. In a time, you know, 100 trillion years from now, the last star is going to go out and the universe is going to be plunged into darkness. Um, and I, I've given talks on this, you know, the, what the prospects of life in the future universe are, is going to look like. And it just gets bleaker and bleaker and bleaker as we go on. You know, eventually we get out to these immense timescales where uh, matter melts, right? You, you know, proton decay and all that kind of stuff. Eventually, um, black holes evaporate. And we're left with nothing but a cold, empty, lonely universe. And so that that often gives me pause for thought, right? That we are, we are living in this tiny um, window of the universe where it's active and there's stars and there's life, etc. But the future really does look kind of bleak. And we don't know how it ends. You know, there's multiple ideas, the, the big rip. And oh, yes. the, uh, you know, <laughs> the uh, heat death of the universe, the, the you know, the, the proton decay. There's multiple yeah. ways. So we don't even know how it's going to end. We just yes. know that it is going to end. And yes. I, that's what I find spooky about that myself. Yes. And, and of course, they, they said there's that, that, that slow decline over the infinite future ahead. But as you mentioned, there's things like the, the ideas like the Big Rip. Uh, there's ideas that, like, you know, that the Higgs field could decay and kick off the birth of a new universe. And, and that would be like instantaneously, this universe would cease to exist. We, it would be like, and that's it. We, we, you know, we wouldn't even notice it ending kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the fact that the universe, uh, of course, it's, it's like everything. We, we think we, we're in the universe now. And we think, oh, this is the way it's always been. This is the way that it's always going to be. But really, when you look at it, of course, we were born in a big bang. It was hot and et cetera. The, and the, the key fact about the universe over billions of years is change. And that change is always towards, you know, decay and all this kind of thing. So, yeah, the universe is, is, is always changing and we are heading for something. But, you know, we're not certain what that something is. Now, Professor, you're also um, a major horror and sci-fi fan and so am i so let's let's go fictional with it what what story in film or in books spooked you the most oh story in film oh no that's that's a good question i mean I'm a, i said i'm a big fan of horror movies um and i tend not to get spooked at them anymore um I, oh 
I don't have an obvious answer about what what spooked me in terms of, of movies. I can tell you the kind of uh, I, I'm a big fan of cl- classic horror movies, uh, and of course, you know they they kind of um, they're kind of fun in their in their style. And I'm also a big fan of the 1980s sort of uh, jump scare kind of movie. So um, you know the the Halloweens, etc. But I I do like a well-made horror movie. One of my favorites is An American Werewolf in London, which blended horror and comedy together in a in a an incredible kind of way to come up with a story, which I I don't think really has been bettered. So yeah, I, I don't have an answer to the what spooked me the most, but I do I do know what I like. It's interesting. I I I'm actually a science fiction author, and um, I. I have two books out and it, that sort of thing. But the thing is, is I'm a hard science fiction author. So I'm more in the grain of Arthur C. Clarke than I am anything fantasy. And horror always struck me as a lot of fantasy. Yeah. So it was of less interest. But there have been a few that did spook me. And I would say the book version especially, but the movie as well, The Shining. Thoughts? Oh, yes, yes. Of course, The, the, the Shining uh, is, uh, you know, one of those stories about a descent into madness, really, right? And... Uh, picking up on the on the clues that it really is uh, that kind of uh, kind of descent. The, the, the human mind always does frighten me um, in in the sense that uh, I, I know that inside my head there's a couple of pounds of fatty material that allows me to understand the universe. But at some level, it is making up the reality I perceive. That's the part that always bothers me. I I know I have eyes, and I know that light is coming into those eyes. And I can see stuff, but that image is all being processed and fed to me somewhere in the back of my head. And I know that my thoughts are related to the chemical balance inside my body and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I, I like to think of myself as, as uh, you know, my consciousness is somehow separate to the universe, but really it's just part of it. And and that my thoughts can be manipulated by the, the chemistry of my body and all that kind of things. It, it, that, that kind of thing does make me pause sometimes, right? The, that question of where am I and what am I does, does bother me. Ideas, and this is something more in, in philosophy than anything you could, you could really ever probe or prove, probably, maybe not. The, <laughs> the simulation hypothesis that this yes. is all just a simulation ideas from the standpoint of physics yeah well so this is again this is something i, I wrote about in in one one of my books way back in 2016 where we talked discussed the simulation hypothesis and so the idea of, is of course is that our universe is nothing really than a, a computer simulation running in a universe above us and uh, you know, they've reached that stage where we've, we've, they can do sufficient calculations that all of the stuff around me, it, it, none of it is real, of course. I, I am just a, a mathematical calculation, etc. And so the question is how we would ever know. How would we know we're in a simulation other than, you know, a giant game over sign appear, appearing in the sky? And in reality, as a physicist, I don't know if we ever could work it out. Because what we do, of course, is, is, is as physicists, we sort of look at the way things behave when we come up with the laws of nature, which are mathematical. But if, if, that, if the creatures above had, had programmed the, um, their simulation using mathematics, 
all we are doing is uncovering their input equations. So everything we find out about the universe, we just build into what we call physics. And so, yeah, it, it again, I said, there's no obvious way that I think that we could really detect that we are in a simulation. Even if we got down to the, the scale of realizing that the universe is little bits of information, of course, there are people that think that's what things are at the fundamental scale. And again, that, that relates back to the simulation hypothesis. And, it, and it, it goes somewhat larger as well, of course. There, Max Tegmark wrote a book a few years ago now called The Mathematical Universe, in that, you know, you don't even need a simulator above, right? That the universe is just truly mathematics playing out somewhere and somewhere in the bubble of all mathematics playing out is our universe, right? Our universe is, is, a, is a place where the mathematics have come together such that we perceive stars and planets and consciousness and people and all this kind of stuff. But none of the reality is, is, is real. It's all just mathematics churning its way through the equations and again, is, is that really the way it is? I don't know how we would ever know. That's an amazing thought that yeah. the universe is a calculation and that's it. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and then, but maybe that's the, that's the end of the, the, the questions, right? Because what if you can't go any deeper? Right? If that's just what it is, then, then the end of questions, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I said Max's book go, goes into this in, in, a, in, a, in a bit of detail. Um, maybe it helps him sleep at night to think that that's where the universe operates. But it, it, it's, it, it's one of those unanswerable things, right? If that's just the way it is, that's the way it is. Well, everything comes down to that because you can run yourself in circles, you know, Absolutely. thinking about philosophies and, yeah. and, and things like that and getting into the metaphysics of, of things that may or may not be. So you, you you eventually hit that brick wall, but you can try to understand it, which is what, you know, what science does is tries to understand it and get as clear of a description and picture as, as is possible. Yeah. Um, now, to flip that question over favorite sci-fi story oh no favorite that's probably war of the worlds I, I i do like to read war of the worlds every so often uh and and just just because you know so I, i'm a big fan of hg wells and i struggle between the choice of war of the worlds and the time machine uh and i flip back and forth between the two but i just think that it, it's a sign of you know, how far Wells was ahead in his thinking about, you know, the, what, what exploded into the genre of science fiction today. So those those classic books from back then, they're the ones I can read time and time again. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sorry about that. I had some sort of a hiccup there. 
Now, the War of the Worlds, the obviously the the novel is 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 the ultimate, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I liked both of the movies, the Tom Cruise one and the classic. Um, was it nineteen fifty? I forget. Yeah. So, what what version of those? That you know, what what do you like the best other than the book? Do you like the uh, Tom Cruise version or do you like the um, the nineteen fifties version? I think I prefer the nineteen fifties version. Um, I, I I I look. I didn't mind the uh, the Tom Cruise version, but I, I don't know. I, I felt it was a little bit drawn out kind of thing. But yeah, look again. If, if I had to sit down and watch either one of them, I'd be I'd happily spend an afternoon watching watching the war, uh, the Earth getting attacked by Martians. Now, in regards to H.G. Wells, the the book that that gave me pause and actually spooked me more than the War of the Worlds was the World Set Free, where he essentially predicted something like nuclear weapons. Have you ever read that one? Yes, yes. So. Yeah, no, the, the the world set free and shape of things to come and those kind of stories, uh, you do sort of have to wonder um, what kind of information was flowing around just in the public consciousness back then, right? For for um, people to realize that there there is power beyond chemical weapons, right? Chemical in in sense of of explosives, and that the power of the atom might be the way of the future. So, yeah, those kind of kind of stories where where people uh, have laid out the a, a picture which has unfolded at some level to match some of the aspects of the world we live in. It is it is very interesting that 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 they could think along those lines, but also that you know it, with with stories again like the shape of things to come. Uh, it, it is that story of of knowing what the what humans are like, and that wars are inevitable, and suffering is inevitable, and all this kind of thing, which is somewhat depressing. That there will be these episodes in in human history where we go through that before, like uh, shape of things to come. We have this ultimate utopia at the end, but we have to go through a lot to get there. You know, you you mentioned something that's interesting because you you have to know the context of what they were thinking about at the time. But go back a century before that to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. I don't know that there was anybody thinking about, number one, Antarctic exploration or Arctic exploration, but also the idea of, um, you know, sewing something together and shocking it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just so far ahead of its time. And you don't see anything after that, really. For decades, you know, yeah. as far as that sort of a sort of thinking, and that t- that comes in as my my favorite novel, actually, both in yes. horror and sci-fi, was Frankenstein because it's just a work of genius. It it is, but my understanding is that Mary Shelley uh, did know of the experiments. I think it was by Volta, where you know, by basically applying electricity to uh, frogs' legs, they could get the frogs' leg to kick. So I I think that was around the same time. So there was a notion. Again, what was flowing in the in the public consciousness? There was a notion that electricity and life were somehow related. But uh, and again, I'm not t- taking away from her genius. It is a fantastic book. Um, but I think there was some ideas that there, there was a relationship between electricity and life that were were floating around at those times. Well, come to think of it, there was actually also I believe it was Benjamin Franklin that 
used to entertain g- dinner guests by electrocuting a turkey. So they ah. they knew something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something. <but. laughs> uh, dinner parties were different in those days. Most definitely, and I'm I'm sort of glad um, yeah. that, that we we have better dinner parties these days. Um, all right, Doctor, we are out of time, and I hope you'll come back sometime soon and talk with us again. And where should everybody look for your books and your uh, YouTube content? Um, so my my books are, are on Amazon. So I've got uh, three books on there at the moment. I, I'm still trying to get back into writing. So books about cosmology and quantum mechanics and fine tuning, etc. So they're 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 on Amazon. Uh, you, my YouTube channel has sort of slowed down over the last couple of years due to to COVID. It hasn't really helped. So I might rebirth it at some point. But I I think I'm one of the last people still on Twitter at the moment at cosmic underscore horizons. I might make the jump to blue sky if if the ads get any more infuriating. But yeah, that's really my my social media appearances right now. <laughs>